Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Roz Taylor, also the host of Jam Tomorrow, the series about the promises of post-war Britain. Neil Kinnock told me yesterday he thought it was very good and that basically made my day. (laughs) Give it a listen this week to hear about why Britain's housing market is so insane. A quick reminder, tickets to our live show at the Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday the 15th of February are disappearing faster than chairman of the Conservative Party. It's going to be a great night with me, Ian, Alex and Aisha, and there are no rail strikes on, so people of the entire greater southeastern region, you can make it home in time for the end of Newsnight, if you really want to. (laughs) Get your tickets at leicestersquaretheatre.com. On today's show, the Tory party are apparently doomed, but what will they have to confront after their defeat if they're ever to become a worthwhile or even viable opposition party? Plus, are the British Armed Forces now too weak to defend our own country? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, when in our own lives do we wish we'd had our own ethics advisor? Let's meet the panel. First, it's commentator Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hello, Rose. The IMF has released its latest forecasts, and it's predicting that the UK will be the only major economy to shrink in 2023 by 0.6%, which is worse even than Russia. We know Brexit is partly to blame, but what else is dragging us down? OK, so what matters here is the trend. Economic projections get individual figures wrong all the time. But what the IMF said, and this is vital to understand, is that global economic recovery will be more robust than anticipated almost everywhere except the UK, whose economic outlook within that new, more favourable environment has actually got worse. So I'm sure everyone knows by now the, the, the list of stuff that make for this particularly British cocktail, higher dependence on gas, Brexit, tighter labour market, which is also in part Brexit, tighter fiscal conditions, worse interest rates, also in part Brexit, and in part down to the trust quarting episode. And Jeremy Hunt had nothing to say on that trend, nothing on the factors the AMF identified, nothing on any of the substance of the report. Our Chancellor's only response to this significant forecast downgrade was to say, well, it might be wrong. This says to me we are in really deep, deep trouble. Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Ros. Australian authorities have located a very small and very radioactive canister that was lost by the mining firm Rio Tinto. How much radioactive material is knocking around the world that we haven't found? Well, probably uh, more than you'd like there to be. There's quite a famous story of um, a case of a British convoy that was transporting a nuclear missile, which wasn't attached very well, and it fell off and landed in a field in Norfolk. But I think everyone knew that that had happened, so they quickly put it back on the back of the truck. But you do have the the International Atomic Agency, Energy Agency in Vienna, has a whole department whose job it is to track these terrifying objects. So there's probably a few dotted around the place. That's reassuring. Yes. (laughs) Ahir Shah is a writer and comedian appearing at the Leicester Comedy Festival shortly. Hello, Ahir. Hello. Today, teachers, university lecturers and rail workers are all out on strike. Some of them are out on picket lines in the freezing cold. I walked past some lecturers today and I gave them what I hope was a kind of rueful grin. I'm you know, sorry you have to do this and it's not too bad. But as someone who's often out in front of the public wanting encouragement, how should 
people show their support, do you think, for the strikers? Yeah, I mean, like sort of applauding uh, in the middle of the street in the cold might seem sarcastic, I suppose, but then I often feel that way when audiences do it to me anyway. Uh, So I don't know. I, I feel like there are so many people across so many sectors and industries who are currently on strike that everyone will be connected in some way to someone who is involved. So like probably being slightly nicer to that person in your life who is involved in trying to get a better settlement. Uh, and I think trying to have a bit more understanding of why people are doing this, which actually I've been pleasantly surprised by over the last few months. I think that there's been a lot of talk about like, well, and the Conservative Party and the government have been relying on, well, eventually public sentiment is going to turn against and we just need to wait for that. And lo and behold, it really doesn't seem to be happening in a way that the Tories were relying on and in a way that, truth be told, I sort of suspected would probably happen by this time. Ultimately, the way to show support by people particularly working in the public sector who want a better settlement is to no longer have a Conservative government. Um, This is not (laughs) to say that a Labour government will be perfect uh, on this, right? Like my mum, uh, is retired now, was a state primary teacher. My first sort of political memories are the fact that she was going on strike uh, in order to uh, get a better deal. And this was, I was born in 1990. This was also occasionally uh, during a Labour government. It's not like any Labour government has ever been perfect on this. What I do also remember is that over the course of my childhood and uh, the first years of my adulthood, I saw her working life get considerably, considerably better as I saw the schools I went to get considerably, considerably better Mm -hmm. and the public realm all around me get considerably better. And uh, it's been a great shame uh, watching that sort of be dismantled. Yeah, when you had your first child in 2009, I tell you, it's it's, uh, (laughs) an optimism. But I still think that there should be some sort of equivalent of tooting your horn if you're a pedestrian somehow, you know, because it's it's a traditional show of support for You're suggesting tooting as a pedestrian. (laughs) I don't think they might take that as a show of support. A toxic mix of complacency, entitlement, fear and exhaustion. That's how the Tory MP Andrew Bowie described his party, and that was back in June 2022. Two APMs and a series of monumental mistakes later, there are plenty of people on their own side who think the Conservatives need a spell in opposition. But last week, Rishi Sunak hosted a cabinet away day at Chequers, and the election guru Isaac Levido told ministers there was a narrow path to victory if they pulled themselves together. And tonight, Rishi Sunak is addressing the centenary dinner of the 1922 committee. Hang on, you may say it's 2023, and that is correct. The 1922 (laughs) committee, political trivia alert, was actually founded in 1923. Is there a path back and what would that path look like and if as seems more likely the Tories will indeed be in opposition by the end of 2024 what's the future of the party how can it reinvent itself Arthur can we get something particularly unpleasant out of the way first Um, those of us who hoped Boris Johnson would go away have found that it's quite the opposite he's speaking at the Atlantic Council in Washington DC as we record this What is the Johnson strategy? Is it a comeback strategy or is he genuinely committed to Ukraine and just can't stop talking about it on the world stage? Um, 
Is Johnson genuinely committed to anything, I suppose, might be the question you want to ask there. It's fair to say that he he put a lot into Ukraine, but there were no political downsides for him. I mean, the idea that somehow he risked everything for the well-being of the Ukrainians doesn't, doesn't to me, seem to stand up at all. He must be planning a comeback. It, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that I think he's planning a comeback immediately. I noticed he also issued a, a sort of celebration of Brexit video that went out on his social media, which looked just like the sort of thing a prime minister would do. But, you know, clearly he's paid for someone to film it and edit it and put it out there. Freelancing, basically. Indeed. PM, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, he's he's not gone away. I think I've said it once before on this podcast. I think he believes that somehow... He was sort of removed from number 10 on a kind of technicality, that it wasn't really somehow the fact that his entire party had lost faith in him, that he'd shown himself to be completely unsuited to government, that, that it was just a sort of a, a technical problem that, that could be resolved. And, and after a few weeks, he could, he could sort of breeze back in. And so I think that's, that's his, in his mind. And, and Ukraine is just a very, very useful framework for him to sort of pursue that. Liz Truss has also been in D.C., coincidentally. What's her plan? It's hard to imagine, really. I mean, you know, is she plotting a comeback herself? One of the things that any normal person has to grapple with is the psychology of the person who ends up as prime minister and that level of self-belief that you need. And even for someone like Liz Truss, who... She she's officially the worst prime minister ever, isn't she? I mean, you know, she she's no one will ever. Be, it's it's a bit like sort of um, you know sort of Lionel Messi give, or something. Give it time, <laughs> you know. You, you can break so many records. It's quite hard, really, for someone to be better than that, better at being worse. But I think, yeah, you're right, Arthur. Maybe you know, maybe someone will will do that. Twenty twenty three is young. We, yeah, we've said this so many times. Yeah, right, never right? say never. The you're only right. ways okay. up, right? The only ways up. So I I think that in her mind, though, perhaps again, you know. It, it wasn't her fault. Somehow it was the fault of the markets or the fault of, of the Ukraine war or Putin. Or, you know, there's always someone else to blame. And I think you, if you have that kind of radical, delusional self-belief that, that is needed just to be Liz Truss, to live with being Liz Truss, presumably, yes, believing that you could, you could, be, you could plot a comeback for a grateful nation is not that hard. It's only actually five months since Kwasi Kwarteng's appalling mini-budget, and it's two and a half months since Jeremy Hunt's effort to fix it by putting taxes back up. Yet already backbenchers are demanding tax cuts in the budget next month. And the trust dream is not dead, is it? No, unfortunately not. And and it is the tiresome old thing about, well, communism's never really been tried. And obviously, we did try trustonomics, and we saw what happened. For the true believer... And of course, you know, Truss was the fact the reason she became prime minister was that she channeled a certain type of kind of libertarian free market thinking, which which had never been troubled by reality. As we all know, belief isn't about reality. It's if, if you're if you're part of a cult, if you're part of a sort of ideological movement, reality is not really the issue. You know, we've seen this clearly in its most uh, extreme form in Brexit. But I think that this, this smaller group of sort of libertarian free market fundamentalists, well funded, of course, well funded, uh, and I'm sure they're you know paying for her airfares across the Atlantic, and no doubt she'll get a handsome speaking fee and all the rest of it they will continue to be able to say, well, it wasn't done properly or there were specific externalities which mean that, that we need to do it again. And, 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 that, and she's keeping that flame alive. 
Alex, are the Tories suffering from a chronic lack of purpose now that they think that they've done Brexit? Of course, we all know Brexit isn't done, but that was the promise Johnson made. I mean, is it a case of of Hamilton's, if you stand for nothing, what do you fall for? What, what do they, do they have anything that they want to do now? So the, the answer to that is still in the realm of the economics, okay? There are two things bubbling under the surface in the UK which are worth mentioning. We are the most unequal in terms of household income of any comparative economy according to the OECD. And it is a gap that is opening, not closing. So the IFS estimates that the richest 1% had tripled their wealth in the decades leading into the pandemic. And the pandemic appears to have been a big bonanza for them, right? Oxfam estimates that globally, the richest 1% pocketed two-thirds of all the new wealth created during the pandemic, which is in the trillions. All that wealth being siphoned away from the real economy, it matters, and it matters especially at times of crisis. The second thing is that our markets are uniquely dysfunctional. So Gorinchas, the IMF economist presenting the data on Tuesday, said something that has been largely ignored, that the UK is worse affected by high gas prices and, I quote, with higher pass-through to final consumers. No one's addressed that. Everyone's ignored that, okay? We see that everywhere. UK consumers are being fleeced Record profits for energy giants during an energy crisis. Huge profits for supermarkets at a time of insane food inflation. A university sector with with 40 billion in reserve refusing to pay its staff properly. Rail operators that profited during the pandemic not giving proper raises. I think we have reached a, a, a tipping point. You know, I think the tick is bigger than the dog now. And for a government to, to tackle those profound systemic issues, two conditions must be met. It must want to do something about it. It must want to eliminate inequality. And it must be willing to act on that impulse, right? Does the Tory party want to do that? Is it willing to tax wealth, to redistribute the pie, to regulate industries, to return monopolies to public hands. Can you see any future iteration of a Tory party that will want to do that? I can't. Do you think it's partly the failure of Brexit that is affecting them psychologically? I mean, at some level, even the greatest Brexit proponents must, in their heart of hearts, know that this has been a colossal failure. Um, who cares? <laughs> no, I mean, businesses are closing. Real people are suffering. Fam- families have been divided across borders. The, the, the young people of today are being denied the, the life-enhancing opportunities that we all enjoyed mm. only a few years ago, right? And those that led us into this swamp are largely insulated. So do, do I give a rat's ass about their... 
hurt egos, I don't. Yeah, I didn't really mean that whether we should we should care for them, but how it might be affected, how it might affect their feel that, that can they do anything? I mean, they've really screwed this up so royally. Is the Tory party capable of meaningful action really it, anymore? I mean, it's in the same category as free market economics, I think. It's this thing that done perfectly would be perfect and it just hasn't found its ideal expression. You know, we are, when it comes to economics, when it comes to foreign policy, because that's essentially what Brexit is, the, the Conservative Party is now in the realm of religion. It's not in the realm of evidence-based policy anymore. They believe stuff. You know, that's why Jeremy Hunt comes out and says, oh, we've beaten the forecasts before. We just need to stay positive. That's what boosterism is an expression of, the belief that we will make it. Ah, here. Um, it was Rod Stewart, unexpectedly, who came out <laughs> last week and said that uh, he was fed up with um, the Tories and it was time Labour had a turn. I mean, we, we can't say that's true of all over 70s. Let's face it, there are still quite a few Tories. <laughs> well, Rod Stewart's there. always been an exceptional... Uh, yeah, in, in so many ways. <laughs> The party is bleeding support from the under-60s, especially people who want to own a home but can't see a way to do it. Does any kind of new Toryism have to recognise that most people aspire to own property and most people under 40 are now unlikely to be able to do so? Well, it's it's fascinating. So firstly, that you talk about like bleeding support from the under 60s. And that's that's become what we talk about when we talk about young with relation to the, like, yeah, and it's bit like, and it's also like another thing that's really weird is that the Conservative Party is bleeding support among anyone who has a job, which also isn't really a yeah. thing that historically, maybe they would have wanted to see as associated with themselves. But it's, it's the case, right? And uh, like, you have previous people like Thatcher talking about her dream of a property-earning democracy. Of course, this used to be sort of front and center of their policy. Uh, you know, one can talk about the successes and failures of that, uh, particularly with regard to something like right to buy. And it's remained at the center of their rhetoric uh, without the understanding that it takes more than rhetoric in order to build a residence that <laughs> a human being can actually uh, live in, right? And I think that... The problem for the contemporary Conservative Party is this sort of conflict or bind that they've put themselves into. Like, as much as we may say so on this, this isn't a party filled to the rafter with total idiots, uh, right? They they know that there aren't enough houses being built. And it's like, can they not see that if there was planning reform, then you could build more homes? It's like, obviously, they can see that if there was planning reforms, then you could build more homes. It's just that they can also see a bunch of other parts of their electoral coalition who would hate nothing more than that. But like even, you know, Liz Truss talked about planning reform and changing that as one of her big planks when she got in uh, for, for that brief time. The Conservative Party's issue, I, I think of it as sort of being like um, Bernie Madoff, you know, like running his Ponzi, where basically like everything was going fine from his perspective. And actually, if things had kept going the way that they were macroeconomically, he could have probably kept that going until he personally died. And it would have been a very great problem for people uh, in his family, the younger generations who were involved in the... Uh, mm -hmm. But for him, it would have been okay uh, out of that. 
then 2008 happened, circumstances outside of his control uh, happened, and all of a sudden the entire thing blows up. And I think that that's what the Conservative Party have done, right? Over decades, they have boxed themselves in by becoming in the sort of 1980s in particular, the party of an asset owning class, but have stayed the party of those particular asset owners, mm. right? As they have uh, gotten older, Sam Friedman uh, recently wrote a very interesting uh, piece on this in his uh, blog, Commenters Freed. And now, as those people have aged, they have just become the pensioner party. They have not replaced these people, the new depositors, in the way that this uh, Ponzi theoretically could go. And your problem there is that your voting base will eventually die. And then, as a consequence, you, as a political party, will die, right? If you have no other purpose. I don't think that we can talk more about this in a bit, but I think that there's actually, for the first time in my life, I feel a fairly good chance in a way that I didn't even feel with the Labour Party, with some of the difficulties that the Labour Party went through a few years ago. I think that there's a very real chance that this political party stops existing as a major force in British mm -hmm. politics, like the Liberal Party in the first part of the 20th century. Like a hundred years ago, it happened to the Liberals because it's like, what are you for? And that question couldn't really be answered in as good a way as other parties were able to. Right now, first part of the 21st century, the same question is being asked, what are you for? And the Conservative Party can't really answer it. There was an interesting piece by the FT's Janan Ganesh uh, yesterday, and he said the Tories are going to lose the culture war because they will always put making money ahead of getting jobs in the arts and universities and places where they can exert cultural as opposed to financial influence. Mm -hmm. Is there something to that? So I, I did. I read this column and I found it extremely weird uh, because <laughs> there's sort of like I don't know if straw man and steel man are sort of the, quite the right uh, terms, but I like that initially his sort of. Example of reasonably typical businessmen were Nadim Zahawi and Rishi Sunak, <laughs> who are like phenomenally, breathtakingly, like financially successful uh, at the very least. It's not your average businessman does not have a careless and not deliberate million pound misunderstanding with HMRC. Touching tales of riches to more riches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your, your average is just a small business owner like trying to make it work uh, with you couldn't dream of that uh, sort of money and then similarly his example of a left-wing person working in the arts was a spectacularly unsuccessful stand-up comedian <laughs> <laughs> very funny and uh, particularly reading yeah, this like, I uh, well no in my life I uh, <laughs> realised like looking at his sort of descriptions of your what he regarded as your prototypical uh, right-wing uh, businessman and your prototypical left-wing creative I was like Pretty much everyone I know who like works in the city or in consultancy or what have you hasn't voted Tory since Brexit. <laughs> and uh, all comedians, as a comedian whose name escapes me at the moment once said to me, uh, are essentially Thatcherites who refuse to admit it. <laughs> I found uh, that to be like certainly not in a, in, in accordance with my uh, sort of experience of who I've met. I do think that in terms of the culture war, I think that. Part of what's happened is that culture wars can sort of settle in new places and culture can settle in new places, right? I don't think that there are any sort of, you know, I remember when the, David Cameron was prime minister and there were sort of equal marriage was a big thing uh, in the new, and then it happened and it feels like, the, this is not to say that, you know, things that seem very solid in their foundations can actually be mm. on sand. Uh, I know. On things like, 
equal marriage or race equality when I compare the situation right now to even when I was a child. It's not perfect, This, ha- but it feels like this has all settled in a very different place. Uh, right. And so if your Tory party does not now exist for, because like not many of the conservative voting coalition or who they would like to have in their voting coalition have at the top of their mind, well, I want to make it illegal for two dudes to get married again. And that's like the number one thing that I've got Mm. uh, going on, right? If that's not who you're for, what are you for? Again, going back to my previous point, and it's that you are the NIMBY party and you are the old people party uh, and you are the leave absolutely everything as it is and don't change anything party. And I think that this may be a more controversial statement than any of the ones uh, that I've made previously. The Greens do it better. (laughs) And I think that over time, it might not be that surprising if a lot of and you see all of it at the moment. Like, I think that the king right now is the first member of the royal family who I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't vote Tory. Like, I reckon that in another life, he'd just have been like a green councillor somewhere uh, you know uh, uh, and everything and i can i can genuinely see a world in which that becomes a thing where they're like they're losing they're losing lots of their councillors in that way at the moment we may see more of it in the locals there uh then i know that this is this is a very sort of nascent thought but this is certainly a radical for you know a party that that has embraced so much of ukip but but i'll run with it um arthur what do you think a new tory party post perhaps election defeat god willing might look like because i'm so old i can vividly remember the the post 97 tory party which you know went through uh, various cycles of thinking what we need is an even more right-wing leader than the last one. So, you know, they started with William Hague, who, whilst he's he's had a sort of good second um, innings and, and now seems quite moderate, back in those days, he was he was very much the sort of Thatcher redux. And then, and then of course, you know, he wasn't right-wing enough, so they, they, they tried Michael Howard and then, and then sort of Ian Duncan Donuts, whatever his name is, right at the end. And, um, <laughs> and, and you know, he was, he was a sort of comic turn. And it was only when David Cameron started saying things like, we don't actually have to uh, go on about, um, you know, young people wearing hoodies as, as, as a sort of social uh, ill. The boring truth that but back in the centre ground, you know, that's where the Tories came back. So I'm, I'm certain that the, um, the sort of uh, bulgy-eyed weirdos who've been controlling the party, you know, since the Brexit era will, will be the first to grab it back. And they'll lose a couple more elections badly, and th- and then they'll realise that perhaps they they need to you know engage with other human beings and not just <laughs> themselves. Well, that sounds promising. Mm. Alex, the former Tory leader William Hague, who of course falls into uh, the category that <laughs> that uh, we were just hearing about, says although things look bad for the Tories, Labour are only interesting because he says they are judged to be close to power rather than being close to power because they are judged to be interesting. Does that matter? Is he right? Well, I mean, Haig's piece is a rather elegant, preemptive elegy for a troupe about to run into its very timely demise. He's basically saying not all is lost, knowing that all is lost. But he's saying it with a purpose because he's trying to deter them, I think, from acting as if they have already lost because he can see the tendency for scorched earth Right. And he he quite likes the country, I suspect. So he doesn't want want them to have a massive tantrum 
while they're still at the helm. So no, I don't think it matters because it, I, I think it's the wrong criterion. At a time of such profound crisis, voters will not choose the next prime minister on the basis of who is interesting. You, you know, a, a drowning person does not choose the most fashionable bit of wood drifting by. They choose the bit that they think might save them. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. This week, James Agnew is disappointed by Rishi Sunak, as so many of us are. (laughs) He says, One aspect of Johnson's removal I miss is the theatre and performance. Speeches by Sunak leave me feeling neither hot nor cold. Who is waiting in the wings in British politics to fill the void? Should politics be entertaining? I think you have views on this, Ahir. Yes, I do. It's like, so it's interesting, right? Because we've gone, when going from, well, let's, we didn't actually go from Johnson to Sunak, did we? I, I, there were so many uh, in the middle. Immediately <laughs> have uh, forgotten. The, but um, I suppose these two are illustrations of sort of politics as spectacle and politics as technocracy. There definitely is a space for spectacle just in in sort of like human relations right like when we're talking about like human collective relations there is definitely space perspective and the sense that i always got with boris johnson is someone who fundamentally wanted to be the king but couldn't become the king uh because that was impossible and so did the nearest thing that it was possible to do in being a king uh, uh, to be a king which was to be prime minister uh and i'd been starting to think about things through this prism and realized that actually there are certain leaders who have fulfilled almost that sort of monarchical role at the same time as a prime ministerial role like i think sort of thatcher did that and holds that position as having been like queen for a bit blair was king for a bit right this is how we uh, regard these figures and it's interesting to me for example that in nations that explicitly eschew that and i would think particularly uh, about places like france and the united states President Biden and President Macron seem far more like kings of their respective nations than someone like Rishi Sunak, or, or indeed that any British prime minister uh, does in terms of like fulfilling that head of state role and all of the pomp and all of the ceremony and stuff. So I think that that shows that there does seem to be some sort of need for this. However, when it is entirely empty, as it was when Johnson was Prime Minister, then we get into the whole Wizard of Oz scenario where there is this great degree of spectacle, but the second that the curtain is pulled back and it's just the guy, appropriately enough, wheeling the bicycle, and you realise that there wasn't really anything at the core of it. But I I do think that there is something in people that (laughs) makes it... An interesting book on this, uh, I seem to remember, was um, Edmund Burke's uh, sort of philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful uh, is is an interesting uh, one on this. I I mean, (laughs) ideally, you want it to be funny, but you don't want to be the brunt of the joke. Mm. And I think that's where the Johnson experience made me say no. 
I, you know, we have the, the only advantage of the monarchy in this country is that it provides a fucking soap opera. <laughs> so you can afford your politicians to be quite dull and dry. All right. So well, that's you know, we've just had the costliest stand up act in the history of the world through Johnson and then Truss. Let's let's not have entertainment at the expense of the yes, country. That's certainly the bad shot, you know, 19th century view of what the monarchy ought to be. And I mean, recently, I have to say that it has been fulfilling that function, yes. if that's what you're after. Um, Arthur, if, are, we, are we yearning after an epoch-making leader again? And should that leader be entertaining? Uh, I don't think we are, no. I think, I think we've had it uh, with charisma, because I think that... Tony Blair had had one kind of charisma, which ultimately proved potentially toxic. You know, everyone can be nostalgic about sort of early period Blair. But by the time you get to the Iraq war, the charisma converted into a sort of mania. And then Boris Johnson, as, as Alex has said, you know, it is, it's, you know, after dinner speaker, amusing, you know, cosplaying London mayor, which everybody knows isn't a real job. In fact, I forget which, there was some sitcom where, you know, there's a, a visitor comes. They said, I love that guy who, who plays London mayor as a joke. And he said, no, no, he is the London mayor. And that was fun. But it wasn't fun when he was prime minister. I don't mind if prime ministers are boring. And because, you know, famously, Clement Attlee was unbelievably dull. And the fact that Keir Starmer's dull doesn't trouble me in the least bit. So I, I'm all for dull. But what I would say is that, like, if you're thinking of sort of post-45 and everything, the individual at the helm of it may have been personally dull. However, there was a very grand sense of national mission. Yes. Uh, right. So and that's they, they where... There weren't that's dull policies. Like, yeah. Founding like, the NHS uh, was not a dull idea. Where yeah. the, like... And, and this is what I sort of mean by spectacle and theatre like I, I don't mean like Johnson was entertaining in a very like cheap sense of the word uh entertaining um whereas sort of in a situation like a post 45 one where mm. the the nation has sort of like cast itself into this role of what can we achieve and to be honest like the dark version of this is fascism right because fascism definitely plays into something in the human spirit that wants this sort of like narrative mm. and things that, that drives the forward and narrative. everything mm. you know? yeah. and and that that's a hundred percent the like really dark uh, version of this uh, equally no one stood at the front sort of before a battle saying that uh, I've created this Excel sheet to show why it would be particularly useful if we were to win mm. uh, and everything. That's not the rousing sort of speech that I think that gets people to achieve remarkable things like what was achieved after 1945. Mm. You need the bread and the circuses. And I think with Johnson, you only got the circuses. The British Army is no longer a top-level fighting force and isn't capable of defending the UK, according to a senior US general. He reportedly said that the army now barely has Tier 2 capability, similar to that of Germany or Italy. Unnamed defence sources also weighed in to say that the armed forces would run out of ammunition in a few days if pushed into battle, and that the UK could no longer defend its own skies. So is this true? Have years of cuts, which left the army half the size it was a decade ago, left us too weak to defend our own country? Arthur, the armed forces tend to want more weaponry. It's true. But is there a genuine concern there about Britain's capabilities? Is it greater than it was before? 
Definitely. Um, so, you know, there's all kinds of numbers one can play with, but one that is, to me, very striking is that the army will soon be uh, about the same size as it was in the Napoleonic era. And you think, oh, well, that's fine. You know, we, we fought Waterloo. But the, the British population then, I think, was 13 million. And obviously, we're, we're now um, nudging 70. The army has become tiny, and it's, it has also become ill-equipped. Uh, recently, Britain donated 14 tanks to the Ukrainians, which was the right thing to do. Uh, Challenger tanks, you know, there was this whole debate about which tank the Ukrainians should get. And it was important to set an example. And 14 doesn't sound very many until you uh, learn that the British Army has more horses than tanks now. Um, And that's partly because the late Queen loved horses. And, you know, there were there were all kinds of units that needed to trot up and down when the Queen was looking. But of course, you know, we, we, we are past the time when horses are going to be particularly useful in defending our country. And tanks might prove useful. And of course, famously, you know, Boris Johnson scoffed at the idea that we would need tanks. And now the one thing that everyone needs is tanks. So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, literally three months. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you couldn't have scripted the invasion. It yeah, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. like, oh. yeah. who, who needs tanks anymore? Yeah. Ho, ho, ho. There are loads of problems uh, with with recruitment to the military. One of the problems that goes with that is the way the military are treated once recruited. So military housing is a disgrace. It is it is so ghastly. You know, we can talk about private rented property and and, and the way that landlords can be can be pretty awful. But if you're in a military house, you don't even have the rights that you would have if you're just in a normal private rented house. And so it is not a very attractive profession at a time, of course, when there's a huge, um, you know, number of, of, of jobs available. And frankly, you can earn more in Lidl. And why would you go off to uh, live, live in crap housing and, and, and risk, risk your life, you know, if you're going to be poorly paid and so on. So, so there, are, there, are, there are any number of problems, which I think many of them are long running problems that they've come to a head at this particular moment. Have we partly run down the number of soldiers and infantry, whether it's horses or tanks, because we planned for cyber warfare rather than for land wars? Yeah, I mean, there is that. And of course, there is always a constant pressure for a particularly a country such as Britain that, that is still trying to spread itself far too thin and be pl- sort of cosplay being a superpower, a global power, when we, we manifestly aren't anymore that the basic infantry battalion, which is, you know, everyone sort of think, what is an army? You think of sort of lots of people standing with a rifle. That's, that's, you know, that's the basic sort of element of it. The thing about modern armies is you have loads of people who aren't fighting in the front line. But what it means is that the actual number of people who could be sent into battle, uh, sort of holding their rifle, is it, we'd struggle to get 10,000 people into the field now. If you think of the numbers that are fighting in Ukraine at the moment, we would barely sort of, you know, be noticed if we, if not that we would and, and we shouldn't, but if we decided to deploy our army to Ukraine, mm. it, wouldn't, it would barely sort of hit the dial. I think the other thing is, though, the, you know, the army has been incredibly bad at its procurement. And this is a long running problem. And people are always trying to come up with clever new strategies. But basically, uh, 14 billion pounds was invested over the past decade on various types of new armoured vehicle, and yet there is no new armoured vehicle. You know, all this money has basically been frittered away in, in sort of crappy projects that never led anywhere. So, so there is, your, I, I think the thing about cyber and new capabilities is there, but a lot of it is just about pure incompetence and, and a lack of direction. 
Alex, let's talk about NATO, of which, of course, we are a part. It's been treading on delicate ground with Ukraine. It doesn't want to provoke Russia to escalate. It doesn't want to be seen to be at war itself. Nearly a year on from the invasion by Russia, does does NATO feel stronger or does it feel weaker? I, the, I mean, the alliance feels stronger by a few measures um, more members are committing to the required defence spend. Um, traditionally neutral countries are joining. Traditional cre- critics are keeping pretty quiet. Simultaneously, though, I think it has shown itself to be not fit for purpose in a weird way because as a defensive alliance, if it had shown the unity, the muscle, the readiness... Theoretically, this is the sort of invasion it might have averted. It's it's not like there weren't opportunities. You know, Crimea was illegally annexed eight years ago. So I think some profound reflection is needed to turn it around into the defensive alliance that it was meant to be, the sort of keeper of the balance, rather than just a reactive body that just panics after there is significant conflict and sort of gets its act in order. I mean, that's... Do you think it seriously didn't think that Russia would invade Ukraine? Because there were plenty of people saying, oh, no, it'll never happen. I don't think it has organisational purpose in that way, actually. I think it's it's a sort of... Very much like the EU, it's a mesh of national interests and political uh, currents. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not any kind of hawk. I, I would love to be in a situation where we're looking at, you know, the sort of army numbers that Arthur was talking about, and it's because we live in a much safer world, and right. that's all we need, right? Mm. But, but there, is a, a, there is a dissonance there. We're actually increasingly in a more dangerous world while defense spending is falling. And 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 that to me says that whatever it was meant to be as a forum, it has failed somewhere along the way. Germany waited for assurances that it would get back up from the US before it agreed to send those leopard tanks to Ukraine last week. What role do you think Joe Biden see? What role does he see for NATO in this war? I mean, this is a rare moment in which I find myself disagreeing with the panel last week in the tone um, it adopted about Germany. And, and I'm very happy to be slapped down by Arthur. I'm not a slapping type. If I, if you know I, if I step a, out of line. I, I, I think the pressure put on Germany in the last few months was, in my view, outrageous. It is a sovereign nation with its own cultural, historical, political baggage that ended up really by chance, by default, uh, having the entire uh, world's, but I want you to do this, put on it, because it had the most successful tank in terms of sales, basically. And in my view, the difficulties were ignored. The fact that I think Germany, if you look at its traditional defense policy over decades, 
has travelled the furthest of any country in the alliance. I, I think that is a solid fact. And it's had no acknowledgement of it because we now want you to do the next thing. Mm. It, it, it's a sort of, it's like a, it was like a pressure sale. Although I agree with the result and I wish they, they would have come to it sooner because damage has been done by them taking so long, I simultaneously applaud Scholz for going, no, I'm not going to commit to, you know, to the export of these instruments of death just because you want me to sign on the dotted line at my doorstep. There is a political process and there is an opinion in Germany that I have to take into account. Um, and there is a national interest that I have to take into account. And so, yeah, he has ended up looking very unwilling. But I think that is precisely what he wanted. He wanted to be dragged into this position without being seen as a as a hawk that ignores risk. They've also taken a lot of Ukrainian refugees, haven't they? More a than a million. A lot. Many more and than given we given a lot in aid. It's like the third biggest contributor to, to aid. So I think the problem lies elsewhere. I think the problem lies in Europe constantly looking to, to farm out its judgment to Washington, mm -hmm. to, you know... This whole episode with Germany is really a longing for someone like Merkel, you know, for a sort of steadying, comforting, you know, Germany that exists really only in, 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 existed only ever in fantasy, I, I need to add. So I think the rest of Europe needs to pull its finger out of its ass and stop looking to Washington or to Germany for the solutions and get together and finally decide that they need a unified foreign policy, a unified defense strategy, some pooled um, uh, military personnel. And so, yes, it's basically we need an EU army. That's the answer. Merkel was, of course, not entirely unsympathetic towards Vladimir Putin at times. But, yeah, I take, I take your point. Arthur, sure. Arthur, do you, do you have a response to that? Well, I, I mean... I mean, nor was this country, by the way, nor was the, the well, states. Yeah, we love, we <laughs> love their you money. Yeah. We, we were all very friendly yeah. to, to Russia and China not so long ago. So. I, I mean, I think on the specific question of German tanks, I guess there's a question about what Germany itself did. There's a question about Germany making it difficult for others to donate German tanks that they had bought. Now, obviously, you know, buying a tank is not like buying a car. If I buy a car, I don't need Mercedes permission to sell it to someone else. You can understand why it's different with a leopard tank. But equally, I think the way that Germany made it difficult for Poland and Finland specifically to, to sort of forward some of their leopard tanks uh, was problematic. And, and the thing with the Abrams tank, you know, the Abrams tank is is a diversion. It just complicates everything for everyone. And, and, and that's where you and I completely agree. It's just symbolic, though, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's symbolic. just forcing America to throw in its lot. Yes, but, but I mean, no one could say that America hasn't already thrown in its lot. Sure. So, I mean, that would be the... If, if we had a situation where America was, was, you know, this was a Trump America and they were saying, well, frankly, those Ukrainians, you know, need to work harder or something, then yes, I get it. But uh, this, this America, Biden's America, has given, given so much stuff to the Ukrainians, rightly, in my opinion, and and to make them donate some tanks that will just complicate the supply lines for the Ukrainians, what will, will complicate battlefield, 
you know, maneuvering, all that sort of stuff. Of course, I, I take your point about Germany's historic context, the complex political, you know, there are lots of Germans who are of a pacifist mindset who think that, you know, perhaps we, the, the solution is to, is to be more mindful of Russia's concerns. You know, that is a real political constituency mm. in German, Germany, whereas here that's pretty much a fringe view. So, you know, it's, it, we, we shouldn't ignore those issues. I guess I'm, I'm less sympathetic to Schultz's no, I, and, I, and I get that. Like I said, I think it's the right place to mm. arrive at, and I wish yeah. we, we'd gotten there sooner. But, you know, at the same time, we just have to understand that the last time Tanks rolled eastwards. German tanks rolled yes, eastwards. It was pretty damn complicated. You yeah. know, it's a psychologically complex thing for yeah. everyone else in Europe, yes. pretty much the Western allies. Yes. That period marked liberation and glory and victory. Yeah. For Germans, it marks shame and humiliation yeah. and defeat. And you can't just undo that in the space of six weeks just because everyone else really wants to. I hear looking beyond. Um, Ukraine. When Rishi Sunak became PM, there was talk of what a good thing this could be for UK-Indian relations. How much influence does Britain have in South Asia at the moment? Yeah, well, certainly Rishi Sunak uh, becoming uh, prime minister was received uh, with sort of the combination of like you know being pleased and just what really uh, <laughs> sort of uh, in India. Uh, which I saw through many forwarded WhatsApps as, as much as anything, uh, right? And of course, he has uh, through his uh, father-in-law Narendra Modi, uh, a sort of billionaire, uh, sort of Indian uh, businessman who founded Infosys, does end up uh, having sort of connections to governing structures uh, of India, and those personal relationships do sort of matter. Uh, and in this case, they exist. So I think that. You know, there, there has been speculation as to will this mm. sort of help there being a Indian trade deal, for example, if we can get around the rest of the Conservative Party's uh, <laughs> gigantic antipathy towards uh, having, for example, Indian students come here uh, with uh, a greater relaxation of student visas, although the, the problem is obviously absolutely nothing to do with anything that you might think that it is on the face of it. No, how could you possibly think that mm. we have a problem with yeah. uh, anyway. I think that Britain's relationship to South Asia, I'll speak about India principally because that's principally what I know about, but the Indian subcontinent uh, more generally is one that often in Britain we don't really acknowledge the extent of, right? I think that we're getting a bit better at knowing because with the 75th anniversary of uh, independence and partition in 2022, there was sort of more happening in the news of it. But because I think that culturally so much of our discourse about race relations and demography and sort of that is just taken wholesale as though we were a province of the United States rather than a country with its own history and its own present uh, and everything. We don't really know ourselves uh, to that extent. For example, I think that Many listeners may genuinely be surprised uh, if I would say, like, with this is data from the 2021 center, uh, census, uh, British Asians are by far, by a very long way, the largest uh, ethnic minority group uh, in this country is 9.3% of the population uh, identified as British Asian, 4% uh, Black British, uh, and then about 2% uh, as uh, mixed race. Uh, British Indians are the largest ethnic minority, again, by far in England and Wales. 
there is a huge uh, Hindu population, particularly uh, in this country, that often seems uh, not really to be um, thought of and whatnot. So there is a huge, just through the people who live in this country, both first, second generation, increasingly third generation as well, huge numbers of connections too. And those connections run very deep, right? In 2022, uh, India received for the first time was the first country to receive $100 million in, uh, sorry, not $100 million, $100 billion in foreign remittances, uh, sort of reflecting the fact that the diaspora, particularly in the UK and the United States, have become sort of disproportionately wealthy, even relative mm, mm, to mm. Uh, the, po- the populations mm. of the countries um, that they have settled in. So taking all of that, there is a very strong relationship and a degree of, in some ways, mutual influence that I don't think that we really think about or know about to the extent that it it does um, exist. I think that, yeah, the points that I'd like to make on this is that there is a very large relationship between particularly Britain and India that continues to this day and is a very important relationship, the scale of which, even now that we have a British Indian guy in number 10 Downing Street, I think that we don't really understand. Equally, now that we move into a 21st century where it cannot be taken as a given that other countries will always be the subservient partner in any sort of negotiation or what have you that's another thing that we're struggling to come to terms with and will need to come to terms with uh, in the future particularly if this um sort of pre-uk uh discussion of an asia pacific tilt uh, does indeed uh, c- come back It's nearly the end of the show. So what are the stories that have fallen under the radar this week? Alex, what's yours? So mine is, uh, uh, the the Guardian did some work, did some freedom of information requests to find out how many people have applied for a voter ID and found that the number is just over 10,000 so far. Now the, the local elections are three months away and the government's own estimate is that Roughly two million people need voter ID, mm-hmm. um, and so that's zero point five percent. It's going to be a massive disenfranchisement. I don't think it's getting enough attention. Uh, Tory MP Bob Seeley was on Politics Live on Wednesday when we record, and he had the temerity to suggest that, well, if we were doing this before a general election, you'd complain. So that's why we're doing it before the locals. He had the gall to suggest that local elections don't matter. Instead of being the person encouraging people to get more involved, he was treating it as if it's a trial. And I just think it's absolutely outrageous. Agreed, 100%. Arthur, what's yours? Uh, Yeah, a subject I have mentioned before, but but recent events make it worth mentioning again. So Yemen, the war in Yemen, there is some positive and some less positive developments. But a positive development is that the Saudis and the Houthis, who are the sort of main rebel group there, are now in direct talks that that sort of started at the end of last year and they've resumed just just recently this month and this is really important because basically the the so-called government of Yemen has become 
increasingly powerless. And if there is going to be a peace deal, it, it, it requires the Houthis to find agreement with the Saudis. There are downsides with this, which is that the Houthis aren't, do not represent all of Yemen. I mean, and that's not I'm not for a moment saying that I think the Houthis are nice people or whatever. It's just that they are the people controlling most of the north and the sort of west of the country. They don't represent the whole of Yemen. They could cut a deal with the Saudis. I mean, basically, the Saudis want out. Their their plan to, uh, you know, dominate Yemen has failed, like so many of MBS's cunning plans. Uh, and it, you could end up with a deal being cut, which gives the Houthis far too much power over a country that still is is not united. But it is better that those two parties are talking than not talking. And that's what's happening at the moment. Well, I uh, have been reading a very interesting report, and I know that's not always the best uh, opening, <laughs> but it's seriously interesting. It's a report that came out last week into how impartial the BBC is or isn't when it comes to economics, but it actually goes way, way beyond that. And it's incredibly well written. I highly recommend it. And it looks at whether the BBC is actually biased in the way it thinks about not just economics, but the way it covers all kinds of issues. And it concluded, you know, that we it doesn't generally as a as media in general we don't really talk about things in a way that reflects the whole country and an obvious an, an obvious example of the people who wrote this report but it wasn't at all to me was that in two or three parts of the country including wales and i think the northeast people pay more in vat than they do in income tax and yet we never actually really talk about vat mm, we mm. just talk about income tax as if that's the only tax that that matters and similarly when you talk think about public transport most people actually don't take trains or hardly ever take the train um they buses are what they depend on but we don't give a toss about buses, really, because it's all just, you know, local stories. One bus route gets axed. We don't see the whole picture. And instead, we spend a lot of time thinking about HS2, which I've just done a bunker daily on, actually, which uh, to, to look forward to. So it's a really good read. And it's a really good corrective to some of my lazy assumptions. Ah, here, how about you? So I want to talk a bit about uh, Gautam Adani, uh, who's the founder of Adani Group. Uh, it's an Indian sort of multinational luxury deals in things like ports uh, and what have you. Now, uh, Gautam Adani uh, is a phenomenally wealthy man. And I think that when he was at the peak of his wealth, he, I remember reading, if considered sort of relative to the people of the country in which he lived and like quite how many sort of individual GDP per capita it would take to form his wealth, he was would probably be considered the richest person who's ever lived, uh, right? Because he he had a net worth that was equivalent to so many just Indians mm-hmm. uh, in general, right? Now, recently, and. Uh, a sort of investment research firm uh, with a sort of activist bent called Hindenburg Research, who are sort of activist short sellers, came out uh, with this report saying that they believe that Adani Group is responsible for some of the greatest sort of corporate frauds and malfeasances uh, of all time. There is a almighty sort of share sell-off and stuff. I think it's now topped $90 billion at time of recording. Uh, going on, this guy's net worth is plummeting. There's going to be a massive restructuring of, I guess, the business landscape of India uh, if this all sort of goes the way that it seems to be going now. So that's certainly something to sort of look into and read up about. He's yeah. doing a musk. <laughs> certainly something I had no idea of. Thank you, Ahir. And that's the end of the show. Thanks so much to Alex. Thank you. 
Ahir. Thank you. And Arthur. Thank you. Don't forget the first three episodes of Jam Tomorrow are out now. And stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Just search Oh God, What Now Patreon to find out how. Hello and thanks from me to Chris Machin, Tom Musker, Paul Holt, Lorda Bushnell and James Agnew who also got his question answered today. It's like a James Agnew special. (laughs) Happy day for James Agnew. Huge thanks and uh, hello from me and commiserations on not getting any of your questions answered uh, from me to Laurie Hayes, Alexandra McCallum, Oliver Dyer, John Crisp and Michael McLaughlin. And thanks for your support and all the best from me to Andy Delamere, Lucy Rutter, Z, Laura Turnbull and Jenny Cooper. And finally, a big shout from me on behalf of the whole podcast to Adam Johnston, David Rimmel, Joe E, Tim Kelly and Alison Leonard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh, God, what now? Was presented by Corporal Ross Taylor with Private Ahir Shah, Arthur Snell and Alexandre. The General was Andrew Harrison. The Lieutenant Colonel was Jacob Jarvis. And the Captains were Kasia Tomashevich, Jack Gerbertson and me, Alex Reese, the least convincing drill sergeant of all time. Now drop and give me 20. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, Boris Johnson didn't see the need for an ethics advisor in Downing Street, and frankly, we can see why. (laughs) Liz Trust wasn't in post long enough to hire one at all. Rishi Sunak did appoint the baronet Laurie Magnus, Eton, Christchurch, the City, the National Trust, to the post, and he's already quite busy. Let's face it, there are times when we could all do with an ethics advisor in our lives. We just hope that nobody writes a report about it. What decisions would we have needed an ethics advisor for? Arthur, there must have been times in your professional life when you encountered difficult decisions. What? He tell could us. tell you, but then you don't. <laughs> yes. Is there anything that you can tell us about? Um, well, I did participate in the Iraq war, which uh, the Chilcot <laughs> inquiry has shown to be an illegal Why war. are we all laughing? Uh, Monsters. Yeah. yeah. So, I know, it's just like Arthur started pretty big on that one. Like, yeah, so. So, um, yeah, I think I think we all needed an ethics advisor, and sadly, we didn't have one. So, um, yeah, so, sorry to sorry to go all serious, but I, I guess you know that is a, a genuinely a case where I think the British government got unmoored from what it's very clear was a unethical and illegal conflict, and you know, I was I was involved. Right. Well, that was pretty major. Good. Um, and I, I can see why, yes, you could have benefited from some, from some experts. Starting to feel a lot better about myself, actually. <laughs> yeah. this, is, uh... this, this makes my story about lying about my age and grind uh, rather pale and insignificant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, like, no. When do you tell them the truth? <laughs> is, that, is that your example? No. No, um, no. <laughs> no, I'm only joshing. Um, so back in the days when I worked as a sort of market investigator, That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning.
Thanks for listening. See you next week.